to another episode of Monstrosity's Voice Horrors and Touch Conversations, a podcast for Black Horror by Black Horror. I'm your lovely host and producer, Kaija Fields. Okay, y'all, so I know that I said that this episode was supposed to be up yesterday, which was February 3rd. I did record the entire episode throughout, and the sound was absolutely dreadful, so I'm here in my car on my lunch hour recording or re-recording the episode. So thank y'all so much for bearing with me because, as you know, technical difficulties do happen, um, but moving forward. Happy Black History Month! It is the month of February, which means that it's Black History Month. And even though Black History is every month, let's take some time out um, to celebrate Blackness, Black excellence, Black business, Black artists, and Black content creators like myself. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. Thank y'all so much for supporting me with my rocky start to Season 1, and I promise to give y'all more consistent content every other Monday or Tuesday if technical difficulties persist. (laughs) Uh, So tune in. With that being said, this is a Black Woman of Color podcast, and I am devoting season two to dissecting some of my favorite Black horror movies only. This entire season is devoted to every Black boy and girl who loves horror films as much as I do. So, this episode has been sitting in my vault of ideas, and when I found out that THE Jordan Peele is creating a sequel to the 1992 classic, I had to say something. Now repeat after me. Candyman. 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 I am 24, almost 25 years old, and I wouldn't dare say his name five times. You guessed it, I'll be breaking down Candyman today. So like I always say, stop the podcast and watch the movie if you haven't already, because there will be spoilers. This is a spoiler alert, okay guys? I think Candyman is actually streaming on Netflix um, too, so it's literally just an app away. So watch the movie and come back to join in on some of the commentary. What is Candyman actually about? So released October 16th, 1992, written and directed by Bernard Rose, Candyman is a horror film based off of the short story The Forbidden by Hellraiser writer Clive Barker. So we're following Helen Kyle, a graduate student, and her journey to uncover a local urban legend in the impoverished housing projects of Chicago's Cabrini Green. Her belief is tested, and so is her faith when she summons Candyman, an immortal hook-swinging deity who torments the residents of the housing projects and anyone who questions his existence. So let's get into Candyman, a little bit more in-depth on who he is. Born the son of a slave, Candyman was a distinguished artist who was raised in elegance and class due to his father's invention of a shoemaker during the American Civil War. 
He was hired by a wealthy landowner to paint a portrait of his daughter. The two fell in love and she became pregnant. And you have to think, this is like in a super anti-misogynistic time. You know, she's white, he's black. So when the dad found out, he hired some local townsmen to chase Candyman out of town. They cut off his hand, replacing it with a rusty hook. They poured honey all over his body and he was stung to death by bees. Finally, his body was burned and his ashes were spread over what is later in the film to be discovered as the same place where the Cabrini Green housing projects were located. So give me some time and I'll go more in depth on Cabrini Green later on in the episode. Now, the cinematic narrative of black men dying at the hands of white women or for loving white women dates back as far as the early 1900s with W.D. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, where, you know, the main character is lynched for allegedly lusting over a white woman. We also have films like King Kong, where it is also speculated that Kong is supposed to be the symbol of a black man. But lust for black bodies in contrast to perceived white purity and innocence is nothing new to cinema and film. Black men are constantly demonized. Now, Candyman tends to haunt the residents of this housing project. He kills innocent people to keep his name alive through rumor and urban legend. You can summon him by standing in a mirror, saying his name five times, and turning the lights off, then he should appear. Y'all, don't try that at home. I know it's a movie. I know it's fake, but just don't. Just don't. <laughs> so he is a mixture of some classic urban legends like The Hook and Bloody Mary. Um, standing about six foot tall, um, he looks rather dapper. You know, he has nice leather shoes. He has his starched pants and he has this long brown trench coat with fur lining um and i love posting memes of candy man <laughs> i love posting memes of candy man in that trench coat like he's just he's on it okay so just a few uh Fun facts of the film and a little bit of history on Caprini Green. Um, it is a real housing project in Chicago, Illinois, and was the building that loosely inspired the 70s black sitcom Good Times. So it was built in 1942, and it was initially a prospectively, you know, safe haven for low-income families with, you know, state-of-the-art furniture and building structure. Caprini Green soon grew to become one of the most violent housing projects in the city, and its placement, you know, around more wealthier houses and residencies didn't make it better. Um, after an influx of crime and vandalism in the area, the government housing officials and resident management completely abandoned the residents, leaving them in unlivable conditions. The only form of aid or help that they saw fit was to sweep the area in inhumane militant fashions. Um, around two-thirds of the residents were single-parent um, homes, and ma majority of them were um, single mothers. Now, the movie was even shot um, at the actual housing project, and ironically, the year that the film was released, which was 1992, um, that was one of the peak years um, and one of the highest years of murder in the area. Um, also, another fun fact, the NAACP was involved in the monitoring of the script to create, like, cultural factuality and sensitivity, um, which I thought was interesting, granted um, that some horror scholars still found that the film pushed negative black stereotypes. Um, and speaking of stereotypes, um, after doing much soul searching and research, my outlook overall on this film is that it is about, it is about belief, but most importantly, the power of belief. Um, through that being of rumor, stereotype, or urban legend. The film plays on the idea of belief and is an e exemplification of how the spread of urban legends can equate to the spread of false anti-black stereotypical narratives that are still embedded in present-day society. Um, horror scholar and University of California Riverside professor John Jennings expresses that race is kind of an urban legend. Candyman speaks directly to the mythologies of race and black male bodies, but also the nature of oral history and how folk tales are dispersed. 
The film starts off with Helen Kyle and friend Bernadette Walsh, both graduate students at the University of Illinois Chicago, preparing to make a break in their graduate thesis research regarding urban legends. And at this point, they're conducting interviews regarding the feared Candyman. Initially, when Helen gets word on Candyman and who he is from a white person, she seems like super skeptical and is practically laughing in the guy's face. Then when she gets more clarity on who he is from the two black janitors and saw their fear-based storytelling, she begins this journey of questioning her own belief and the audience really gets to see that from start to finish. Um, and, you know, it completely goes left towards the end of the film. A scene that initially really struck me was when Helen was visiting her professor husband, Trevor, um, and he was explaining the preposterity of the albino sewer alligators. He describes them as modern oral folklore, the conscious reflection of the fears of urban society. Um, I feel like that was a beautiful explanation, not only because throughout history, whites have molded their racist-driven, irrational fears and prejudgments regarding black people into folklore, which has thus manifested into somewhat concrete stereotype. We as black Americans have really had no control or understanding as to why white people were afraid of us. It's as if, you know, black people born in America were born in a form of monstrosity. One of the first triggering, triggering points in this film was when Helen finds out about the murder of Ruthie Jean. The story of her death not only plays on the belief of her being murdered by the Candyman, but the fact that the police not believing that someone was you know being harmed when they were called it's deeper than Candyman in this moment it's a reflection of the relationship that blacks have had in lower income areas in interaction with law enforcement and being in danger the history is they haven't really believed us or that our level of endangerment um is unimportant to them it's funny because you'll always hear black people making jokes saying that they need to sound like a white person to get the police to adhere to their safety needs you know in a timely fashion so I'm going to be pausing throughout my dialogue to express some of the crazy things that I just noticed in the film because that's just the way my brain works and I like funny stuff. <laughs> so cool. So we have the scene where Helen is explaining to Bernadette that her current condo is used, um, or excuse me, that the, her current condo used to be a housing project. And, you know, she's taking her to the restroom and showing her the mirror um, to exemplify her claim. So I don't know about y'all, but Helen was a little too chill with the fact that the only thing separating her from another apartment complex was a small sheet of, like, tile behind the mirror. Like, the shit was hella creepy, and it gave me super American psycho vibes. But in that moment, that's where she technically summons Candyman. And honestly, Bernadette, she knew better. She only said his name four times because sis was scared. And she was not about to play with Helen's white daredevil ass. The part where I start to begin to show no empathy for Helen is when she decides to invade Gabrini Green and drag Bernadette along with her. The entire film, Bernadette knew, like, if she still had to die, fucking run with Helen. In my opinion, I know that Helen was working on her thesis, but it was rather invasive to treat Cabrini Green as it was some form of science project, taking pictures of crime scenes and things of that nature. Also, in these moments, you get to see how beautiful the visuals are in this film, um, like specifically the shot where Helen is walking through the graffiti-painted um, mouth of Candyman. This is also around the time that we are introduced to Anne Marie, played by the actress Vanessa Williams. Before she answers some questions regarding the death of Ruthie Jean, she makes a good point regarding stereotypes. Anne Marie automatically assumes that Helen's going to come in and write her thesis, writing off the residents as being bad, being thieves, game bankers, or on drugs. And Anne Marie makes it known that, hey, you know, we're not like those assholes downstairs. Some of us are really just trying to make an honest living and, you know, get out of the social economic conditions that we are in. Um, and you can see in that moment the conviction on Helen's face. 
Anne-Marie proceeds to explain her perspective regarding what happened to Ruthie Jean's death. And again, she recalls the fact that the authorities were called and she heard screaming through the walls and nobody came. Now, the second time, Helen goes to Caprini Green. She goes alone to try to milk more information from Anne-Marie as if the first time wasn't invasive and enough for her. Um, she isn't, Anne-Marie is not in the apartment, unfortunately, uh, but we're introduced to a new character, Jake, who's a young child who lives in the apartment complex. He tells her that Anne-Marie isn't home, um, and then at that moment, she tries to milk information out of him. <laughs> she's assuring him that he can tell her anything and that, you know, she's not the police. He's hesitant at first, but then he tells her about the seriousness of Candyman and also the story of the little boy who was unfortunately castrated in the restroom. This is also where we see the residents. Um, you can kind of look and see that the residents have a fear-driven allegiance with Candyman. Candyman comes first, obviously, because they all want to live. So after hearing the story of the little boy, guess what Helen goes to do? Yep, you guessed it. This girl goes to the goddamn restroom and starts taking pictures of the crime scene. <laughs> At this point, I'm over it. Um, now, this is when shit really starts to hit the fan. And from this point in the, of the film, everything starts to speed up a little bit more. Um, while she's in the restroom, she is attacked and hit in the head uh, by a gang leader who resembles and embodies Candyman. But granted, this is not the real Candyman. But I'm assuming that the production team wanted us to believe that this was Candyman. She is instantly saved and the guy gets locked away and he's actually accused of the other murders that the real Candyman, you know, committed. Um, another solid point of belief, <laughs> when Helen meets up with Bernadette since her attack, um, one of the first things that she says that was really profound to me was that two whole black people get murdered and the cops do nothing. One white person gets beat up and they lock the entire place down. So maybe sis is a little bit more culturally aware within the relationship of blacks and law enforcement than I had thought. Um, but she's telling the absolute truth. The word of this white woman is believed over and trumped over the actual murders of innocent black people in the same space. Um, side note, the young actor who played, Tra uh, not Drake, Lord, <laughs> Jake, did what he needed to do. The little guy can really take over a scene. Um, this is the part of the film where we are officially introduced to Candyman as Helen is walking to her car. Um, he is repeating her name over and over and just him calling her name is alone enough to keep me up at night. Again, like I said in the beginning, this man is dapper. Okay. Get into the ensemble, the shoes, the pants, the trench coat. Okay. Candyman came to impress. Okay. He wants to take his woman and be an everlasting immortality. Um, so once Helen realizes who the fuck she's actually talking to, um, Candyman begins to play with her psyche. In my opinion, he's haunting her for three reasons. One, because she didn't believe in him in the first place. You know, him saying things like, you were not content with the stories that people were telling you, so I was obliged to come. I had no choice but to come and show you that I'm real and this is who I am. Two, because she was trying to prove that he wasn't real, she went into his home dwelling and tried to sway the belief of others, um, the main people who fed his existence. And three, I think it's because he subconsciously um, wants her because she resembles a woman whom he fell in love with in his past life. Helen was so shook, sis started shedding tears and loses consciousness. Um, and after this point, Helen's faith is completely befuddled regarding Candyman. She wakes up in the apartment of Anne-Marie, who, who has a decapitated dog, blood all over her floor, and Anthony, Anne-Marie's young son, who is nowhere to be found. The screams and the shreks of Anna-Marie, Anna, Anna, Anna 
um, left such a lasting impression on me. It's literally in the opening track of this podcast. So if you want to like rewind it, the screams that you hear, those are Anne-Marie's screams. The scene is extremely intense because we feel the pain of Anne-Marie, but we also feel the fear and confusion of Helen. The police soon come in, arrest Helen, and now she is the monster, the real beast. Candyman is making an example out of her. You know, you didn't believe in me, and I'll make you believe in me. And boy, did he. Again, Helen is in, um, Helen has become the monstrosity in this moment. No one believes what she's saying regarding the whereabouts of the child, what happened to the dog. Um, And once she's released, she discovers through some old photos that Candyman has been haunting her this entire time. Um, and this is the point where sis is really spooked out and she believes in him so much, but it's late. Um, and she unfortunately killed Bernadette. Well, Candyman kills Bernadette. (laughs) So Trevor, who, um, in the past had seemed to have a little bit of faith in his wife in regards to what she was saying, but not really. Um, but when he walks in on her covered in blood with a knife in her hand and Bernadette is lying on the floor gutted like a fish... He was like, yeah, fam, you crazy. (laughs) This is a part where we see Candyman really take over um, when she is admitted into the mental hospital. Side note, Helen is automatically thrown in a crazy house and even gets the pleasure of having a therapist. Everybody say privilege, keep it going. Anywho, (laughs) her therapist is the next victim to fall short to Candyman's wrath, again playing it out as if she was the one who in fact murdered him. This time, she escapes the mental home to look for who? Her husband. Now, Trevor, Helen's husband, he's a low-down, dirty dog. We'll get into that later. (laughs) How in the hell did these people let her escape and not recognize when they pass her in the elevator? I'm over it. Anywho, now Helen is on her way to her husband, and she also uncovers prior to that she had been in the hospital for over a month, like, being sedated with all of this medicine. Um, So, here we, this is what we have. Helen is wanted for two counts of murder, pretty much like two and a half of the dog escaped a mental institution and came back to find another woman trevor told her not to worry about in the beginning painting her house pink at this point sis is like you know what i ain't got nothing else to live for she she lost it i got nothing else to live for um her career and research is tarnished tarnished if she's found by the authority she'll spend the rest of her life locked up because no one believes that Candyman was responsible for all the murders in fact and the same way that she didn't initially believe in Candyman in the beginning of the film so her last moments of humanity is to pretty much sacrifice herself for the sake of the child Anthony who's Anne-Marie's son um if you can remember in the film Candyman told her that if she came with him to be immortal he would return Anthony um back to Anne-Marie unharmed so she runs back to Caprini Green to wait for Candyman and comes across some wall artwork that tells a story of who he is and where he originated from and what happened to him. This is the moment where she finds the painting of the white woman who resembles her and starts to piece the puzzle together. She thinks she's slick by trying to kill Candyman while he's sleeping and Sis really tried it. Um, so she hears Anthony crying in a pile of debris, which also, in my opinion, is a symbol of the same, um, you know, like mob like fire that Candyman was initially burned in in his past life. And she begins looking for him. Long story short, she finds Anthony burns to death, but successfully returns the child back to Anne Marie. So not all is lost. Candyman burns to death, but unfortunately, so does Helen. So we get to the scene of the funeral, and I am shook. Trevor's low-down, dirty ass brings his younger, new woman to the damn funeral. And I'm sick of his games. <laughs> the resident of, residents of Cabrini Green come to the funeral to send the hook of Candyman down with Helen into the grave in hopes of never having to fear him again. 
in this moment, Trevor not only um, believes in what his dead wife or now dead wife and everything that she was trying to tell him, but the overall existence of Candyman. And when I tell you this man was shooketh, all hugged up in the bathroom, crying child, reminiscing on his wife and the things she used to do for him. While his new non-cooking woman is like viciously chopping and cutting food in the form of aggression because he's being super passive with her. And he knew in that moment that he had pretty much fucked up. So a slight pause happens and he returns to the mirror in agony and pain, saying Helen's name over and over again. Now realizing that Sis is immortal and will come to get his ass just like Candyman and, and that is what she did. She comes back to seek her vengeance on his low-down, dirty ass. And you know what? I was for it. And she kills him. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. That, was, that whole scene and that whole play out was really funny. His new woman finds him in the tub, dead and bloody. But when she comes in, she has a knife in her hand. And in my opinion, that's where the cycle of pain, belief, and urban legend, you know, play out because you know what if the police come in and see her with a knife in her hand and they're like oh are you responsible for this murder there's no you know no evidence that helen actually killed him um so overall like i said in the beginning of my long spiel this film is about the power of belief how quick and in most cases concrete folklore can manifest into stereotype it also shows Candyman. In my opinion, a killer who simply is a product of unfortunate circumstance, which was being black and falling in love. But moving into 2020, y'all, Jordan Peele is writing a sequel to Candyman, and it is directed by a black woman. Like, what? Um, Nia DaCosta is the director of Candyman, and it's written by Jordan Peele, and it's starring Yahya Abdul-Mantin II, the Tony Todd, so he'll be making an appearance in the new film, and the beautiful Tiana Paris. Just know, y'all, that June the 12th, my edges will be snatched. I'll even post a picture on the Monstrosities Boys podcast Instagram page to show y'all the, the scalping that, ha- that would have ta- been taking place that day. Um, now, we all know where we should know, you know, um, Jordan Pill and all the things that he's, he's done within the past three years to catapult like horror somewhat into the mainstream. But those that don't know who Nia DaCosta is, she is a director and writer known for her work on films like Little Woods in 2018 and Sleeping with the Enemy. So I'm excited to see, you know, what this film has to offer, but I know for a fact that it will deliver. Um, so, okay, y'all, thank y'all so much for tuning in to episode one, season two of Monstrosity's Voice, Hearts and Touch Conversations. Again, I'm sorry about the technical difficulties that happened yesterday. Um, and if you hear like cars in the background, like I said, I am in my car recording the, this episode. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MVHU Podcast for all episode updates and all things horror. Be sure to support black horror films. I love y'all. Peace. And oh, yeah. Um, rest in peace to Kobe and Gigi Bryan, all the other beautiful souls that transitioned last Sunday. Um, that was a really tough loss and I hope that all of y'all are grieving properly and cherishing the loved ones that you have in your life. I love y'all. Be blessed.
Thank you.